0: the gobbler's knob anyway where was i in clancy's boots way to go they're all some of the 18 titles written by author and newspaper columnist jeff hill inspired by his travels by motorcycle chile to alaska around australia and around the world jeff has enjoyed and still enjoys success as a travel writer most of which is by motorcycle now jeff's been shortlisted or won the uk travel writer of the year nine times now and today we're going to sit down and chat about travel people and of course writing my name is jim martin this is adventure rider radio stay with us we got a good one for you (music) Before we get started, I want to thank these fine companies that help get this episode out today. It's wind pressure that powers the Motobreeze chain oiler. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm. No nozzles near your sprockets. One ounce of oil gets 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets. Motobreeze.com And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Tech filters. Cyclepump.com.
1: I'm Simon Manikin. Simon. Vince, Simon Pavey. Graham Field. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Carl Park, Simon
0: Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Brad Johnson. James Jimmy Lewis.
1: Jim High. Liz Jansen. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.
0: Jeff Hill is an award-winning author, travel writer, and newspaper columnist. And it only takes a quick glimpse at uh, the 18 books that he's written, many of which are bestsellers, to spot. A common and very obvious thread: it's travel by motorcycle.
1: Uh, my name is Jeff Hill. I'm from uh, Northern Ireland. Um, I, for the past eleven years, I've been a, a freelance writer, both a journalist and writing uh, uh, books. Um, the two main jobs I do are: uh, I write the motorbike column for the the Daily Mirror in London, uh, which is a a weekly struggle to hide the fact that I haven't a clue what I'm talking about, but nobody's noticed so far and long may it continue. Uh, and I'm editor of MicroLite Flying Magazine, uh, even though I know even less about airplanes than I do about uh, motorbikes.
0: Jeff, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio.
1: Thank you, Jim. Glad to be here. Great, great uh, site, by the way. I knew about you guys, obviously, because you're one of the top sites out there. But uh, yeah, it's really good. So my pleasure.
0: Thank you very much, Um Now Jeff, you write a lot about motorcycle travel and motorcycles in general. Can you talk about where that all starts?
1: Yeah, for sure. I was, I mean, in in terms of motorcycles, I was, uh, well, a very late uh, developer. My my dad and uh, my uncle used to race uh, Nortons and Rudges back in the the 50s. Um, Dad was a uh, uh well he, he passed his exams to go to uh, I guess grammar school or high school as it would be over there. Uh, but his uh, my grandfather was a, a butler uh, and his parents uh, my dad's parents simply couldn't afford to pay for uh, books and a uniform. so uh, dad uh, taught himself um, mechanics and uh, electronic engineering by correspondence courses and ran his own little business um uh, fixing motorbikes and by all accounts he was a, a brilliant uh, self-taught mechanic um he uh, gave up racing uh, when he got married because my my mother told him she didn't want to be a widow before she became a bride uh, so he uttered those two little words that keep uh, so many marriages together yes dear and gave up but rather ironically um uh, even though he'd given up racing. Uh, he had a really bad accident um, when I was eight, um, uh, when he was riding his Norton up to the local village for some uh, um, provisions. And uh, his bank manager drove out of a side side road without looking and uh, sent Dad flying down the road. And of course, back in those days, uh, riders only wore helmets when they were racing. The rest of the time, it was a flat cap on backwards and... Uh, he had really quite bad head injuries and uh, uh, it affected his inner ear quite badly. So he couldn't even ride a motorbike again because his balance was so affected. Um, and uh, he uh, he had to give up the business and uh, he was on crutches for the rest of his life. So as I said, I was eight, so obviously too young to get involved in the whole thing. And it's sort of been, uh, I got my test finally uh, in uh, 1995 or six when I was, uh, uh, in my, uh, uh well, just, I just turned 39, 40. And, uh, I'd sort of been thinking of getting a motorbike and then as a result of too many glasses of wine one night, um, uh, five months later, uh, at the, uh 1998, uh, myself and a good friend, Patty Min found herself sitting in Delhi and two Royal Enfields about to ride the 7,000 miles home. And I'd only done 30 miles um, or about 50 uh, clicks in in Canada on a bike in my life, including uh, 20 miles to the test and back. And I remember looking at the traffic in Delhi, which is just utter chaos and thinking, what in the name of God have I done? And there were about four times in the first day uh, when I swore I was dead because out there, the the big trucks and lorries just rule the road. And even if they see you, Coming the other way, they'll just overtake and force you off the road. So, having survived that, we made it home. And uh, I wrote a book about uh, that called uh, Way to Go, which is still selling quite nicely.
0: That's quite a story about your dad. And I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. And I know it was a long time ago. But I mean to to grow up with that, especially at eight years old, very influential age, and then decide to get into motorcycling as you got older. I mean, I guess you missed all your early years, but as you got older, but you sort of jumped there. You you said something about you were you were considering riding, and the next thing you know, you find yourself sitting on a Royal Enfield. So you basically got your test to do that trip.
1: Um, not really. I sort of got my test a couple of years before the trip, and I'd vaguely been thinking of. Uh, buying a motorbike and then it it sort of happened quite by accident really. Um, I walked out of the the house in Belfast on um, uh, Boxing Day, the day after uh, Christmas in 1997, Uh, and I saw um, uh, a guy, Brian Park, across the road with what looked like um, uh, a lovely old vintage Royal Enfield motorbike and uh, he told me, uh, which I didn't know at all, that uh, (coughs) the history of Royal Enfield... um, the, the British factory was started in 1901, so they're the oldest uh, motorbike manufacturer in existence, which is a bit of a, uh, a blow to Hardy-Davidson, since they always think uh, they are. Um, and um, when, in 1955, uh, Royal Enfield set up a factory in Madras, um, assembling um, um, 500cc bullets, or 350 and 500cc bullets for the Indian Army. Um, and then when the British factory closed in 1971, uh, the Indian factory was still there uh, making, if you like, like brand new vintage motorbikes. So Brian had been out in India the, uh, the summer before. Uh, he'd bought one of these bikes for um, about 865 pounds, brand new, uh, ridden it around all summer. And he was planning to sell it, but then he'd got so attached to the bike he just had it... Uh, Uh, shipped home Um, and then so I I sort of thought no more about it and then a few days after that Ian McKinnon who was an old friend uh, uh, who I played volleyball with for for Northern Ireland uh, and was now a foreign correspondent in Delhi uh, he came home and uh, uh, came round for a drink and um, I mentioned the Enfields and he said uh, yeah they're really good bikes they're still only 800, 800 pounds or so uh, if you're interested, I know the dealer pretty well, so we could. it would be pretty easy to get one shipped home. Um, I then made the mistake of opening another bottle of wine, and halfway through that, uh, I thought it would be a much better idea to uh, go out, uh, get one, and write it home. And uh, when I suggested that to my editor at the Daily Paper, I was uh, features and travel editor of the next day, uh, I said, you know, if I could get sponsorship for this, it wouldn't cost you anything seemed to be the bit that interested him the most, to be honest. But uh, <laughs> f- fair play to him. He said, yeah, for sure. If you can get a sponsor, um, um, go for it. It'll make a great daily series. And, uh, and then, well, I knew even less about motorbikes then than I did now. So I got in touch with uh, uh, Paddy Min, who uh, uh, whose family I'd known for quite some time. And he was a pretty good bike mechanic. And he said, yeah, for sure, I'll, I'll do that. And then his brother, uh, Yoris, uh, who worked in uh, public relations and marketing, uh, got a sponsorship from uh, a tea company called Nambari, uh, based in Northern Ireland. And the, the stunt they dreamed up was that Paddy and I would bring back the first tea leaves of the season and a little silver canister from India back to uh, the UK. So as I say, five months after uh, I had the idea, the idea Paddy and I were sitting in Delhi on the bikes about to ride the 7,000 miles home.
0: So you managed to turn a motorcycle trip into a tea trip.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it would be. Uh, it was a pretty amazing trip, actually. And I uh, mean, the uh, I'll just relate one one rather, story from it. Uh, the the Foreign Office uh, in the UK, and uh, quite a few other people had said. Uh, in fact, people even in Pakistan had said, uh, on no account um, uh, ride through the Balochistan desert, which is just south of Afghanistan. Uh, because uh, it's full of, uh, rather strangely, the world's most well-educated uh, hill bandits, uh, young Pakistani guys who uh, 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 went to England uh, mostly, uh, got a degree, went home, and they just had no jobs, so they just turned to kidnapping and smuggling to make make a living. And um, Patty and I, we did take tra- a train for part of the way uh, on that journey at the on the advice of uh, the wonderfully named wing commander, but of the... Uh, pakistani air force It was a contact but uh we were riding the last bit through the um the baluchistan desert uh, to the border with iran it was um uh, it was 51 degrees centigrade which is like somebody blowing a, a hair dryer on your face and uh, we ran out of fuel quite late in the afternoon and uh, we were standing there just wondering what to do and uh two guys come out from behind a sand dune with uh kalashnikovs and i looked at paddy and he looked at me and uh I don't know what he was thinking, but I was thinking, uh, I want my my mummy, and I want to go home, and I wish I'd uh, never started this adventuring lark. But the two guys came over, and one of them said in a very uh, uh, polite uh, English accent, "Hello, chaps, do you need some fuel?" And I said, "Well, yes, we do, actually." So they they pushed the bikes around the dune, and there was this sort of Mad Max village of mud huts and all these uh, smuggled cars and uh, bikes and guns and ammunition and uh, drugs and uh, fuel. Uh, they filled up both tanks, charged us about uh, fifty cents, uh, and sent us on our way with a cheery wave. So uh, it was a lesson I was uh, to learn on much later trips. But uh, first of all, that people are essentially good, generally in the world, unless you unless you uh, unless you get unlucky, and if you travel with a good heart and keep smiling, generally you'll you'll get that back.
0: So these were criminals, obviously. And you're thinking that the only reason they treated you well is because you smiled at them and, and showed no uh, aggression.
1: Uh, I I don't know. We may just have been lucky. You know. Certainly they were criminals, and you know, in any global sense. But from their point of view, they were just making a living the the best way they could. And certainly they were the the most uh, polite criminals I've ever met. Not that I have a habit of uh, <laughs> of communing with criminals. <laughs>
0: Well, um, yeah, that, that's an interesting story. Of course, the next person could go through and end up being the 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 prisoner, the person that's kidnapped and held for ransom by the very same people. Um, that's always possible, and, and certainly that happens. Hey, what kind of what kind of traveler were you up till this to this point? Had you been traveling a lot? Did you have a lot of travel experience?
1: Uh, yes, I did. Uh, I mean, uh, the the newspaper I was working for at that time, from uh, about nineteen ninety to two thousand and- nine or so uh, I was features and travel editor of so uh, yeah I was probably away about maybe a couple of months of the year if you added up the days you know so yeah every four to six weeks I'd be away for three to four days so yeah I, I got a lot of travel and I was I was very lucky and, and loved it you know the thing I loved about travel I think and particularly travel writing is that um, uh, as a writer it's the most difficult thing in the world to to write about uh, the same thing every day, you know, everyday life and uh, your own environment. But when you travel, it's like being a five-year-old kid again. Uh, and you're walking around going, wow, look at that. And gosh, look at that. and um, um, it, uh, but, but you bring also the knowledge and all the research you do as an adult. So it's a perfect combination of, if you like, childlike wonder and, um, and, and grown-up fascination with the uh, the world uh, and also um, I think the difference though traveling by motorbike is that uh, and I know I think I said this in the uh, the introduction to where to go the book about um, uh, the delhi to Belfast ride and and uh, uh, one I did on Route 66 on a Harley after uh, the year after that is that you know when you're you know when you're a kid um, in the mm-hmm. summer holidays um, uh, you just jump on your bike and you go off and have adventures. Uh, and then when you get older, it's very easy to get tied down by mortgages and bills and dry rot and rising damp and all the, uh, the worries and concerns real or imagined of, of an adult life. And, uh, and you also s- surround yourself with an awful lot of stuff and, uh, and in, in the sense of possessions and you feel that that sort of defines you. But uh, on a motorbike, um, All you can take is what you can carry on the bike. And yet you're having an astonishing quality of life. You're getting up every morning and riding off down the road, not having a clue what the day will bring, uh, which is so different to uh, general everyday life. And yet you're having an amazing life and yet with very few possessions.
0: I really like what you said there about seeing things through kids' eyes. When you're traveling, when you're going to see something new, and it's often, you know, the people that live there, they won't see it the same way as you do, same as we all do, right? I mean, people come to your backyard and they're they're amazed and awed by what you do and what you have there, whereas, you know, you, you get used to it because it's just normal. What you're inferring there is that, is that travel, I don't know, sort of makes you you, you sort of wake up in your life.
1: Yeah, it, op- it opens your eyes, you know. And f- funnily enough, there's there's an example eh, from Canada back in nineteen ninety or ninety one, I think. Um, I spent um, a couple of months with the London Free Press in Ontario, and then I spent a month travelling across um, Canada to the the west coast and up to the uh, the Yukon and Alaska. And then the year after, I went back and um, uh, travelled around all the, the eastern provinces as far as Newfoundland. And in fact, my my Latest book uh, just out is, is a collection of stories from that time. It's called um, uh, I Could Have Been a Stoker for a Vertical Wimple Crimper, uh, naturally. And I, I was really worried that somebody might have already used that uh, title, but I think I got away with it. But when, when I was in um, the London Free Press, I arrived there in the middle of winter and uh, uh, I had a f- few experiences of walking to work and, you know, 25 below. Uh, and I wrote a couple of columns, both for the London Free Press and for the paper back home about that. And uh, the you know about the experience, for example, of seeing people leaving their their cars running to warm up outside while they had breakfast before they drove to work. And I thought if you tried that in Belfast, your car would be gone in about thirty seconds before you uh, <laughs> you'd finished your cornflakes. But uh, they and just sort of several things like that, and that the people in the London Free Press said. Uh, you know, how do you notice all that stuff? And I said, listen, if you came to Belfast and walked to work with me, you'd be going, hey, look at that and look at that. And I'd be saying, you know what? I've never noticed that before. And it's just really because, as you as you said earlier, um, w- when you're in a new place, it just opens your eyes uh, again to things that local people have stopped seeing.
0: Is that how you ended up with a motorcycle in India? You're looking for something to write or was that the after afterthought?
1: Um. I think, yeah, good question. I mean, it, it wasn't initially planned as a book, just as a, a, new, a newspaper series. And um, I just thought it would be an absolutely fascinating trip. In a way, sort of the, the motorbike was just the method of, of, of getting home. Uh, and also, as I say, because I'd been thinking of getting one anyways. So uh, in a way, it was the bike was sort of peripheral. But uh, as I was I was, as I was defined on later trips, um, uh, they, the, for example, Chile to Alaska, the length of the Pan American highway, um, which I did in a triumph and then around Australia, uh, um, on, on another triumph and then around the world back in 2013, I think on, on a motorbike, uh, well, there are a couple of things, uh, Robert Piercy, who wrote uh, Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance, uh, at the start of that, um, he said you know on a car you're in you're in a box and you're separated from the world and if it if it rains you turn on the wipers and if it's cold you just turn on the heating but you know in a bike you are there connected to the uh, the world and the, and the road rushing by below your feet is uh, it is real and the, uh, if it gets cold you get cold and if it rains you get wet and as you, as you're riding through a, a a woods you can smell somebody cooking bacon with maple, maple syrup and you're much more connected to the world. And also, uh, I think, uh, when you stop, you know, whether it's for <coughs> pardon me, fuel or for a rest, people are much more inclined to come up and talk to you, uh, than if you were in a, a big four by four, for example. So it, it both connects you to the world and it connects other people to you much more than I think any other form of certainly motorized transport.
0: As you mentioned, um, travel writing is is what you do. And uh, I understand you've been shortlisted uh, or, or won UK Travel Writer of the Year nine times. That's a lot. But uh, and, and you've got a bunch of other recognition for your writing. You've got a, a bunch of books that have done very well that have been on the bestseller list, et cetera. But the one that really caught my eye was the uh, Mexican Government European Travel Writer of the Year Award.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. got to
0: be a coveted award. What is that?
1: Uh, who, who knows? <laughs> yeah. I'm still trying to figure that one out. The, um, uh, I, I got a, yeah, I just got a phone call from the, the Monday saying, uh, here you've, um, won, won an award for the best piece in a European newspaper on Mexico. Um, and I said, yeah, great. Thanks. And, uh, they said, uh, can you come to the award ceremony? And I said, uh, yeah, where is it in London? And they said, no, it's in, it's in Mexico. Uh, and it's this Sunday. And I said, okay. <laughs> so uh, I went to see the editor and he said, yeah, for sure. If you can get a flight, go for it. You know, but it, ne- it never happened in the end. Um,
0: oh, your editor was going to pick up the town for that?
1: Uh, I don't think he was. No, I think he was uh, He was looking to me to, to blag it as usual or for the Mexican government to, uh, to pay for it. But in the end, it never happens. So, uh, in fact, I never, I'm just trying to think. Yeah, I don't think I actually ever got anything physical for that award apart from the, uh, the phone call and the, the news that I'd won it. But hey, you know, I've got enough awards to do me a lifetime, so <laughs> I don't really need one more thing uh, weighing down the mantelpiece.
0: But, and i think that's quite funny but what i was really getting to was the what is it that that attracts you what makes a travel writer I, I mean i already like the way you're saying about seeing things through kids eyes i don't know if that's a result of traveling or if that's that's something you're looking for but what is it about travel that is so attractive to you
1: i, I think i think it is that you know they that uh i just love I don't travel quite as much these days, but when I when I did more, I just loved that feeling of arriving in a, a new city, for example, late at night and uh, and going to bed, and then just um, uh, waking up in the morning and throwing back the curtains and, and just going walking through the streets like uh, as if the the world was reborn again, and um, uh, just seeing things for the the first time and making uh, and I mean I, I do I, I do a lot of research before trips. You know, typically I'll, I'll read about 20 or 30 books or more on the places I go to. And um, I mean, I, I may only use uh, one or 2% of that, but it's in there if you need it, you know. And it also gives your writing a bit more depth than just walking around going, wow, that's amazing and uh, that's astonishing. And I remember interviewing Charlie Borman after A uh, Long Way Down, the, the one through... Africa, uh, and I mean, I loved Long Way Around. I thought it was really a fascinating series, and it, it really did increase the profile of uh, adventure bike riding. But I thought the African one was—it uh, was just a bit of a mad rush through uh, uh, Africa. And I said to Charlie when I interviewed him, "Did, did you guys do much research before the trip?" And uh, he said, yeah, yeah, we had people finding out what visas we needed and stuff. And I thought, yeah, right. <laughs> That's not research, Charlie, but uh, never mind. I don't mean to... he's a good guy, actually, Charlie. I've met him several times and uh, he's, I mean, he's just a down-to-earth bloke and he knows that he he really did strike lucky with his friendship with you and, uh, and the long way uh, around phenomenon. Because, I mean, when that trip was um, proposed, uh, Charlie was, I think, working as a part-time painter and decorator because... Uh, his acting career really hadn't taken off in the same way as his friend Ewan's.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had Charlie in the show actually, and uh, yeah, he seems like a very honest, down down to earth person. Y- you, um, I-, I want, I want to go back to to what you were, we were talking about here. As, as far as travel writing goes, your your books, a lot of them, I guess, most of them are, are really about travel.
1: Well, I've written eighteen. 18- Books so far, and which surprises me, because when I wrote the first one, I thought uh, uh, writing one and getting it published would be uh, impressive enough. But I've th- and there've been three three novels, um, quite a few motorbike adventure books, some travel books of collected writing and uh, uh, collected newspaper columns. So quite a quite a quite a variety. And uh, I think the one thread that runs through them all is something that still fascinates me um, even after decades of doing it, and that's the, the creative process, uh, whether it's writing fiction and The uh, the Butler's Son, which is my latest novel, uh, which I've turned into a four-part TV series, which is being pitched to uh, Netflix and Amazon at the minute. The first line of that, um, uh, which was uh, Max Edwards was 18 when he saw the woman he loved and the man he wanted to kill, that, that just came out of nowhere, and then the, the book wrote itself in about five or six weeks, and I'd wake up, i I'd keep a voice recorder by the bed, and uh, I'd wake up in the middle of the night, and just entire scenes or dialogues would present themselves to me, and even when I was writing the weekly newspaper column uh, that I did for the, the daily I worked for, um, it, it, so, some, of them were, some of them were serious and uh, factual, and others were just complete. Flights of fancy, fancy, which I made up, and uh, I'd quite often sit down with just like half a thought in my head, and and get into this zone where a bomb could have gone off on uh, a indeed Quite often did go off in Belfast at the time, and I wouldn't notice it. I wouldn't have noticed it, and then I'd look at what I'd written afterwards and think, where on earth did all that come from? Uh, and that, as I say, that, that process still fascinates me. I d- I don't like to delve into it too too deeply in case I ruined the magic, but I just still find it utterly fascinating where all the, all the stuff comes from.
0: You say you're fascinated by the creative process. You're, you're also a tutor, so you're helping to teach other people how to write, how to be creative.
1: Yeah, I haven't done that for a while now. It was with a, a writing school in Belfast, but uh, it was, yeah, it was really, really satisfying uh, just to... Um, to uh, see pe- people get it, you know In a way, um, the, 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 well the two basic secrets of good writing are uh, uh, is to, to have a killer intro, to have a great first line that just grabs people and, and don't let them go. and then, and then less is more. Uh, if you can describe something in three words rather than three pages, it, it's much more powerful for the, uh, the reader because it lets them fill in the gaps in their own imagination. It's like, you know, when you read a book, uh, a favourite book and you see the movie of it, it's never or very rarely satisfying because you've you've written the movie of the book in your head Mm -hmm. uh, and when you see somebody else's version of it, you go, yeah, that's not what I I thought. And uh, funny, I still as editor of the Flying Magazine, quite a lot of the content I get is from Uh, pilots who are amateur riders and uh, uh, you know for example they'll send uh, in a a piece about a a, a trip uh, they and their friend uh, Jim went on and uh, uh, they'll typically sort of start well Jim and I arrived at the airfield and we got the plane out and we checked everything and then we had a cup of tea and then we got in and we did this and we did that and I I say no start at the bit where the engine stopped over the mountains and you wished you'd stayed in bed that morning Mm -hmm. Uh, and then as I say Uh, less is more. And uh, actually that to writers who aren't professional writers, that less is more um, rule is incredibly, uh, is a great relief to them because they think, when I write a story, I've just got to write down everything that happens. And you don't, you just need to write down the stuff that that fascinates you because if it doesn't fascinate you, it it certainly won't fascinate the reader. So yeah, it it was very satisfying. Um, Passing on stuff like that to to students of writing and just seeing their pleasure when they when they got it when it clicked with them.
0: I think when you think of creative process, it, you, you sort of I think a lot of people associate with with an artist. You know, you you have um, sort of a flair for something. You have a certain way of doing it. Do you use the creative process when you're writing about something that really happened as well? One of
1: your trips. Um. You mean, do I make it up, Jim? <laughs> <laughs> I
0: wasn't, I wasn't going to ask that outright. No, I'm not talking about making it up, but I mean, <laughs> is that part of it? Do you feel like you're still doing a creative, uh, a creative process when you're actually doing fact instead of fiction? Yeah,
1: yeah, and a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you don't change facts, obviously, you know, you might, you might move things around chronologically a little bit just for dramatic effect, but not, not much really. But, um, I mean, what I was talking about there, you know, starting with, uh, uh, Sam Gold, uh, Goldwyn of Metro Goldwyn Mayer said the secret of a, uh, a great movie is to start with uh, an earthquake then work up to a climax so so it is, and it's the same thing with stories especially because um, people's attention span now is so well um, uh, Alay Kazan the 1950s theatre and film director he said he reckoned then that uh, people uh, give a movie or a play or or um, whatever, about seven or eight minutes before they made up their mind whether they liked it or not. And the, the more recent uh, research that I've seen shows that uh, people's attention span 10 years ago was uh, 12 seconds and now it's about eight.
0: Hmm.
1: Sorry, what was I saying again? i <laughs> exactly. uh, I drifted
0: off. I, I, I didn't hear uh, me what too, saying. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I've heard the same thing. I, I remember seeing a piece with um, a guy who's quite well known here in Canada, David Suzuki, and uh, he was saying that when he first got on television, he said that you know they would do a twenty-minute talking head, where it's just a shot of a person talking, explaining a concept for something, and to lay out the full concept. And he said now it's seconds, and they've got to chop to another shot. And the problem with it is, is, is in his view, is that it doesn't give time to to really form a thought, form a, an idea for someone. You have to do it in these little tiny bites.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and you can see you can see why. You know, it's I mean, it's it's uh, there social media, and there, because there's so much information online uh, at a click, you know, so if you're not interested, you just click onto something else. And, I mean, you know, if if you read a Victorian novel like Jane Austen or whoever, or Tolstoy or any of the Russian novels, you know, you're 100, 120, 130 pages in and nothing has happened and you just wouldn't get away with that uh, these days. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I know the reasons, um, uh, and as I said, yeah, uh, you know mighty rules are you know a, a brilliant first line that uh, just grabs the reader and keeps them keeps them reading, and then and then less is more. So I mean those are the those are skills that people can learn. Um, on top of that, uh, do I use the creative process? Y- yes, is the answer in the sense that um, there's always a different way of looking at things, and I think. Um, yeah, you know, maybe my mind does work in a different way uh, to <laughs> to normal people, but uh, I think th- th- there's always a different way of sort of looking at things, and I think that different way um, is what sprinkles the magic fairy dust on top of the the bare bones uh, of a story and 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 makes makes it makes them different.
0: Is part of that. Um, stepping out of your comfort zone? Like you mentioned that, you know, you go somewhere and you spot people that start their vehicles and go inside. And you think that would never happen where you're from. And if you said, if somebody comes to Belfast, they're going to be pointing things out to you. Is that part of that where you, you're stepping, you're being forced out of your comfort zone or you force yourself out of your comfort zone and you're you're in a position where you can spot things?
1: Um, that's a good question. And the answer is, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know whether it's, um, I, I certainly think traveling makes writing easier because you're you're seeing things with a fresh vision and a new eye all the time because they are new and it, it is more difficult to sit in one place all the time and write about the same environment. But having said that, um, uh, you know, I wrote, I wrote the the weekly newspaper column, which they're all collected as uh, uh, the Brownie Dawn Patrol, which was the, uh, the title of it. And, and quite a lot of those were... Uh, were not created by looking outside but by just going into some place in my head and seeing what happens so i, th- I think i don't know if that's a very satisfactory answer but i think it's a combination of both really what what you observe and how you um uh, deal with it creatively in your head and uh, does that make sense yeah i mean it's, it's I, that's a question that hasn't been asked before actually so it's a good one and i think that's the best answer i can give if it makes any sense
0: no doubt you want gear for your bike that is made for travel discovery and expeditions now i don't mean labeled as that i mean designed for it giant loop is that company their model go light go fast go far now giant loop says that they believe that lighter and simpler is better. And that means that they focus on what you really need for the job and they eliminate those extra straps and buckles. And I like the idea of eliminating those. I like the idea of having what you need because it's been one of my beasts for years in the outdoor field is that you have so many loops and buckles on the things that you buy, the backpacks and things, and they just end up getting caught everywhere and you literally, you never use them. Anyway, Giant Loop says they focus on lightweight, very durable, and very functional gear like bags, tank bags, and more. And they've got a really nice fuel bag as well. So if you, um, if you're the type that wants to carry some extra fuel every now and then, but doesn't always want to carry it, have a look at the Giant Loop gas bags. This is something I need. It's a great way to deal with it because you can roll the bag up, store it on your bike. And then when you need it, you know, if you're caught by surprise, you can just unroll this bag and fill it up. I think it's for officially for off-road use only, but their website, giantloopmoto.com. And make sure anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Giantloopmoto.com. The Red Rock Garage is closed for the season, but come spring, they're a destination in British Columbia for riders either passing through or riding around BC. They're a coffee shop with a motorcycle addiction, and when you stop by, of course, you're going to find fuel and coffee, obviously, but they also have a campground and B&B for riders passing through. What an amazing area to ride in. It's worth your while if you're getting anywhere near this or you're close by. Detour. Get out of your way to Beaverdale, British Columbia on Highway 33 and check out this iconic motorcycle destination. It's called Red Rock Garage. Their website is redrockgarage.ca.ca means Canada, redrockgarage.ca. And don't forget, throw in there that you heard them on Adventure Rider Radio. Keep your feet planted where they should be while you ride, no matter the conditions. Stay connected with that bike and gain the advantage of the extra leverage with IMS Products foot pegs. Cast certified stainless steel, heat treated, made in the USA, a lifetime warranty, designed and built by riders just like you and I. IMS Products has been doing it since 1976. They've got a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs. You can get it at their website imsproducts.com, and throw in there. Anytime you're dealing with them, if you're asking them about the pegs or which which is suitable for your bike, tell them you heard them on Adventure Rider Radio. imsproducts.com. Yeah, I'm just wondering, you know, there's a lot of people who are writing books nowadays. Um, Publishing is so much easier now than what it used to be, as you know. And it used to be a big thing. And you really needed to get accepted to publish a book. Whereas now, I could choose to publish a book tomorrow. And I think we all know that. And certainly in this industry, we're seeing a lot of books written about travel stories. People go on an adventure and they think it was an amazing adventure. And I'm going to write a book about it. What advice would you have for them?
1: Um. Well, first of all, just go in the adventure, <laughs> whether, whether you're going to write a book or not, you yeah, know, you mean, don't I mean, make do, it your,
0: your goal to write the book.
1: No, don't make, don't make it your goal to write the book, you know, and, uh, also not everyone is a writer. You know, if, if you, if you want to keep a record of the, uh, uh, the trip, you can do it either writing or blogging or vlogging or, or you know, I mean, there's, you can do it by sound or vision or whatever, you know, so, uh, and there are quite a few people who do that, do it very successfully. Um, so don't feel an obligation to, to write about it. But if you are, if you are going to write about it, then my advice is, um, either take a notebook or to be honest, I use a, a notebook less and less these days. Uh, I just use a little voice recorder, but on all the trips, um, Partly because um, I was writing a story every day uh, for uh, uh, the paper back home, so I mean you'd write all day, stop about tea time, um, find somewhere to stay, uh, wash, wash your clothes, hang them up to dry, change into a fresh set, sit down and write up the story for the day, and organise the uh, uh, the photographs, and then eat, sleep, and repeat. You know, so but, and even when. Um, I mean I know people who are uh, some travel writers you know they'll they'll go on a trip and they won't take out a notebook and they'll just uh, write it up when they go home or even months later but i th- I think you miss an awful lot of stuff if you do that so my advice if if anybody out there is listening who wants to write a book then write, write it as you go along don't do a until you get home or even just keep um, notes uh, there's a, a friend of mine I see Chris Donaldson he's just written uh, or back when he was 22, I think, uh, he wrote a, a Gucci Le Monde, um around the world and nearly drowned in a boat in the middle of the, uh, the, the Atlantic. Um, and he got in touch with me recently because he'd, he'd kept all his diaries from the time and uh, uh, wanted to write a book about it and he needed need a little bit of help with it. So so he had all his diaries there, which he's turned into a book and it is a uh, Uh, A brilliant book, I think from memory, it's called Wrong Way Around, which is, uh, um, but uh, so yeah, if if you're going to write a book or if you're going to do anything, just keep a record at the time and then see what you've got when you get home. But you know what, don't don't let the thought of writing a book um, spoil just living in the moment and having an adventure because that's what uh, uh, any adventure and any travel and uh, any bike adventure is about.
0: You just mentioned that when you're you're writing for the for the daily paper and you're on a trip and you come in and you sit down and you write up the the story for that day. So that day you had no idea when you started out if it was going to be any good, if it was going to be a good story. Which is one thing I was going to say when you were, when you were mentioning that um, if you don't take notes, you may miss stuff. Well, that that allows you to be, it uh, gives you a little creative license. You can say, well, I'm not really sure if that happened, but in any case, <laughs> um, that's not where I'm going with this. Where I'm going with this is. So if you write about that day and you're confident you can put a story into the paper, is every adventure worth a book? I mean, you know, cause I, I'm, I'm picturing it like some people could go on an adventure that just isn't story worthy. Or is that in the, um, in the power of the pen, or I should say the keyboard nowadays.
1: Uh, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess if you're a brilliant writer, I mean like Bill Bryson, for example, mm-hmm. uh, it is, you know, Bill Bryson could walk into an empty room and, and, and be funny about it. Uh, whereas somebody who's not a, a writer at all could have the most amazing adventure in the world and produce an incredibly boring book and believe, and believe may have read some of them. So yeah, it, it's, uh, it depends on, on the person, you know? And, uh, I mean, generally, um, yeah, I think a good example of what you're talking about is, um, uh, uh, 10 years ago, um, I wrote a, a Triumph Tiger 1050 uh, all the way around Australia. Uh, and it's probably in the book, uh, Oz, uh, uh, it, it's probably the one I'm least um, proud of because, uh, I mean, generally it, it takes about three, three and a half months uh, to, uh, to have enough material. Uh, for a book i mean to be honest on, on trips like the Chile to alaska one i could have taken uh, three years or 30 years and still never seen anything but the, in between these trips i've got a living to make as well and i find that generally three three and a half months of travel gives you enough material uh, for for a book and um i th- i think yeah I, I don't remember any sort of real days particularly in that trip um when I thought, well, nothing happened today, you know, certainly the Australia trip was a bit more difficult, uh, in, the, in that regard because, um, uh, I mean, you, you could fit all of Europe into Western Australia, uh, alone. and uh, the population I think is about 26 million or so. Um, uh, so th- there's an awful lot of nothing out there, uh, because most of that population is in a few cities that are in the bottom right, uh, Adelaide, Melbourne uh, and Sydney and then up the coast in Brisbane, uh, Darwin up at the top and um, uh, Perth down on the left. And that leaves an awful lot of nothing. <laughs> it's quite difficult to write about. Nothing no matter how uh, how creative you are. Uh, so as I say, that, that one was probably, I think, I mean, Australia would be probably much more interesting if it was about the size of uh, Ontario, for example.
0: Ontario, Canada.
1: Ontario, Canada, okay. yeah. Is there another?
0: Well, Ontario, California, I
1: guess. Oh, of course. Yeah. How could I forget? Absolutely.
0: When you're talking about the, maybe this, this book didn't turn out quite like you wanted to. When you're finished writing for that day or even doing that daily paper article, do you have to look at things and say, okay, what was funny? What was interesting? I'm just sort of curious how you come up with a story out of that or does it develop as you go along?
1: It develops as you go along. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've never sort of, Found I had to go looking for stories, and and and, I mean, as I said before, um, you know, I do a lot of research before trips, and and I may only use a small percentage of that, but it means that, and and I, you know, I'll I'll write quite a few pre-trip background notes, so, uh, so, you know, so that I I know, you know, the history and the background and uh, the the characters who who were involved with any particular area I'm I'm going through that day so in a way there's a sort of bedrock of um, information there and what happens on that day uh, is the, the I was going to say the icing in the cake but uh, journalists should avoid cliches like the plague as you know <laughs> uh, and um, so, so no I don't I don't think I think I just you know I got into the world look at what happens and then uh always find something to write about it I do remember on thinking once on a um, uh, you know when I went on a, a press trip uh, um, for the daily paper I was working for and uh, I, I remember sort of thinking oh, I can't think of anything to write about yet and I thought oh, well just be still and and it'll come to you and it always does you know I've never touched with uh, uh, suffered from uh, writer's blog for for uh, uh, to to any great extent for for very long, and long may it last.
0: One of the books you wrote um, is In Clancy's Boots, the greatest ever round-the-world motorcycle adventure. True story. Can you talk about that?
1: For sure, yeah. uh, Carl Stearns Clancy, uh, he was an American uh, whose parents were Irish, uh, and he was the first to take a motorbike around the world in 1912, 1913. And, um, I, I'd, I'd never heard of the guy, uh, until, um, back in, let's see, um, 2010, 11, maybe, um, I got a call from a uh, Dublin, um, uh, biker, um, co- uh, who'd, uh, um, called Fergal O'Neill, who'd, uh, uh read, uh, all my motorbike books and, uh, I uh, really enjoyed them. And uh, he, he he told me about Clancy, um, who, uh, although he was American, as I said, his parents were Irish. So in 1912, um, uh, um, on October the 26th, he and another writer had set out uh, from Dublin uh, on this round-the-world trip. And they'd ridden up through Ireland, uh, then uh, across to Paris in really appalling weather and, uh, uh, at which point the other guy said, stuff this, I'm going home. And Clancy continued down across Africa. And then um, he had planned to ride through Turkey and India, but then war broke out in uh, uh, Turkey locally and a fever epidemic broke out in India. Uh, so he shipped the bike to Ceylon uh, or Sri Lanka, as it is now, rode around there and, uh, and rode around what he could in the Far East where there were roads uh, and then shipped. Uh, his bike from uh, Japan to San Francisco and rode home to New York across the states. Uh, And um, what Fergal said was uh, a few of us are planning to recreate the Irish leg of the journey uh, just up through Ireland on the 100th anniversary of Clancy signing out October the 26th, uh, 2012 and would would love you to join us. And I said, yeah, absolutely, I'd I'd love to. And then I, I put the phone down and I thought, I've never heard of this guy, Clancy, so I did a bit of Googling, as journalists call research these days. I discovered that uh, Clancy had, in fact, uh, taken a motorbike around the world in 1912, 1913. um, And although he kept a series, he wrote a series of articles, actually for an American magazine at the time. uh, And he planned to turn them into a book, but I think the trip was so tough that when he got home, he was so fed up with motorcycling that he... uh, he never rode a motorbike again, as far as I know, and uh, uh, he never wrote the book. And they, uh, but they were all collected uh, by a, an American motorbike adventurer and author, uh, Doctor Gregory Fraser, and he'd written a, uh, he'd put them together in a book called uh, Motorcycle Adventurer. And I, I ordered a copy on on Amazon, and it, I wasn't too far into it when the, uh, the forty watt bulb went off, and I thought, you know what, it would be brilliant to recreate the whole journey uh, of Clancy um, on the 100th anniversary. And, uh, and then through Gregory Fraser, uh, I tracked down a man who, when Clancy died uh, in Virginia in 1971, uh, he and his wife had no kids. So his housekeeper gave his diaries and photographs and his pith helmet uh, and uh, the boots that he'd worn on the trip uh, to Liam O'Connor, actually as yeah, his name Uh, who was the 16-year-old son of Neighbours. And Liam is now a professor at the University of Western Australia. So I emailed him and said, listen, have you still got all this stuff? And he said, uh, yeah, I'm I'm planning to send it to uh, the National Motorcycle Museum of America in Anamosa in Iowa uh, because they've got an exhibition on Clancy, including um, the only unrestored example of a 1912 Henderson motorcycle. Uh, which was the bike that Clancy used. I mean, get this, it was 934cc and in line four, uh, seven and a half horsepower, uh, only one gear, no front brake, and the only suspension was like a a bicycle saddle.
0: And incredible nowadays when you look at that cc and that horsepower. I mean, you're talking almost a thousand cc and seven horsepower. So you're talking the horsepower of a lawnmower and the size of a Goldwing.
1: Now, I mean, it's an astonishing trip, especially to do on your own because, you know, there was no Google, no real, uh, well, they had some maps, but they were very rudimentary and uh, no real guidebooks uh, apart from Bidecker's Guide to Europe. So he was just, I mean, it was like setting out to Mars. In fact, it it wasn't really (laughs) because Mars is much better known than the world was probably Hmm. then. So an absolutely astonishing trip. And um, when, when Liam... When I, when I was emailing uh, Liam in Western Australia, I don't know, I just had this mad idea, and I said, um, you don't fancy sending me Clancy's boots, do you? And I'll bring them around the world a second time and leave them at the um, the National Motorcycle Museum in Anamosa when I'm passing through. And he said, uh, yeah, what a brilliant idea. So about two weeks later, this box arrived from uh, Australia, and I must say, opening the box and uh, uh, seeing these boots that had been around the world a hundred years ago was, uh, shiver down your spine and I'm, uh, almost shedding a manly tear, uh, time. So yeah, it was a really nice sort of angle and, uh, uh doing the, uh, uh, the trip just made me aware of what an astonishing achievement it was by, uh, by Clancy. And yeah, as you say, that, that book's called uh, in Clancy's boots.
0: Did you try the boots on?
1: Uh, yeah, I had to cut the toes off because they were too small. But yeah, uh, no, only joking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I know I'm, I'm a size well, 13, and uh, he was a size eight. But uh, 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 although at the, at the launch of the trip, um, uh, we brought together a, a BMW GS, uh, which uh, myself and Gary Walker, the other guy who was going on the trip, uh, were going to be using, and uh, we tracked down the only um, Henderson motorcycle in Ireland. And Gary, uh, my mate on the trip, uh, um, put on the boots and um, uh, a three-piece tweed suit and a flat cap pretty and a uh, shirt and tie, pretty much the same as Clancy would have worn and uh, rode it up and down for the photographers, which is a really lovely moment.
0: Wow. Can, can you tell the tell story about why Clancy did this to begin with?
1: Well, in his introduction to... Uh, the book motorcycle adventure um uh, collected by greg uh, fraser uh he said basically that uh the world had been pretty much conquered by every other means except motorcycle so he said uh, uh he was going to he was going to give it a go and uh and the reason he started from dublin is was because his parents were from ireland so yeah no no more reason than that hmm.
0: you mentioned um you, the The book way to go that you did. Uh, you did another one after that. Um, the road to gobbler's knob. Do I yeah. That
1: right? <laughs> a title that will not be forgotten. Yeah. the. Uh, what is that? The, yeah. They, well, the, that's the one about riding the, um, the length of the Pan American highway from Chile to Alaska, which is about 23,000 kilometers, uh, with a, a, completely mad guy called Clifford Patterson. who was absolutely brilliant. But, uh, Uh, Yeah, the plan had been um, to finish in Fairbanks, Alaska, which is most people agree is the end of the Pan American Highway, which is the longest road in the world, Um, apart from an eighty-six mile gap at the Darien Gap between uh, Colombia and Panama, which is just impenetrable jungle. So, yeah, Fairbanks was the sort of plan. Um, And then I was looking at a map of Alaska one day on the trip when I was in California. And I, I, I thought, you know, what it would be nice to just keep on going as far as the Arctic Circle, uh, which is about another 200 miles past Fairbanks, up the uh, the the gravel Dalton Highway. And then I noticed a spot about 100 miles past that called uh, Gobbler's Knob. And I thought, yeah, it's <laughs> you, you got to do it just to call the book, uh, The Road to Gobbler's Knob. Although when I got there, like, you know, there's nothing there, just a few rocks and a a raven sitting on one of them in a rather strangely an outside toilet and a sign saying Gobbler's Knob. So it was a long way to go for a book title, but, uh, and quite often, uh, uh, even now I get, uh, uh, emails from people who've, uh, either ridden their bikes or got, got there some other way, holding a copy of the book at Gobbler's Knob, which is quite sweet.
0: <laughs> it's become a destination because you chose it for a book title.
1: Uh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely.
0: <laughs> what was that trip like for you though? And what were you riding?
1: Uh, I was riding a Tiger 955, um, a Triumph, that is, and Clifford was on a, an Aprilia Pegasso 650. Uh, it, it was tough, yeah. The, the Triumph kept cutting out through the Atacama Desert, which is like 3,000 kilometers of nothing. Uh, there are uh, parts in there where it's, uh, it's never rained once, which is quite a difficult concept to come to terms with uh, living in Ireland. But... Um, uh, we later found out it was because the fuel had been contaminated with diesel, but it was quite wearing on the nerves, I must say. And then, and of course, the worst bit of the trip, I uh, uh, I crashed in uh, Colombia, just through a moment's inattention going around a corner, and that uh, uh, that was yeah, part of the worst. Well, that was definitely the worst moment of the trip. You know, I got up and I'd taken a, most of the skin off my left forearm and uh, quite a few other bruises. Nothing broken, thankfully, but I looked back at the the Triumph lying on the side in this trail of wreckage down the road and thought uh, two years of planning just down the tubes in a moment you know Uh, but the Colombians were brilliant they uh, a couple stopped um, uh, phoned the cops and they turned up in Land Rovers with machine guns it was just like being back in Belfast uh, funnily (laughs) enough and uh, they stopped uh, lorry drivers heading north and uh, one of them uh, bundled the bike onto a uh, onto his truck with all the bits and bobs and I climbed into the back very painfully and uh, um, took us to Cali where thankfully Clifford had friends of friends who we stayed with and uh, they got us sorted out with a local bike shop got the bike fixed which we thought impossible and got me fixed up and went on but uh, you know I was talking earlier about um, your perception of places for example the Baluchistan Desert which we had been warned not to go through and uh, Colombia was back, this was back in 1998. Uh, and like everybody in the world, uh, the Foreign Office, the British Embassy, even Ron Ayers, who was a professional motorcycle adventurer specializing in South America, said, listen, don't go to Colombia. The law cannot protect you there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only way to travel is with a, an armed escort. And in a way, that's more dangerous because it makes you a target. But I talked to Clifford about it, and I, I, you know, about the Balochistan experience and my possibly naive perception that uh, people are generally good. And uh, he said, yeah, let's, let's go for it. You know, uh, what, what's the worst that can happen? <laughs> and in and, and the end, the Colombians were just brilliant. And I lost count of the, the number of people in Colombia who said, uh, uh, where are you from, senor? And when I'd, I'd say in my uh, well, reasonably good Spanish by this stage, because I'd been learning it uh, for two years before, uh, I'd say Belfast in Northern Ireland and they'd go, Wow. Is that not really dangerous? And it was—it was just because of what they'd seen in the news about uh, Belfast and Northern Ireland. Just in the same way that we were scared of Colombia because of what we'd seen uh, on, on Colombia. But as I say to people before and since then, what, what you see in, in the news bears no relation whatsoever to everyday life uh, uh, anywhere. Because um, you know, it's about what's unusual. Uh, the old story is that. Uh, dog bites man isn't news, but man bites dog is. So j- journalists are not interested in Mr. and Mrs. Smith going to work and the kids going to school. Uh, but you know what? That's that's 99.9% recurring of life in every, every country in the world. It's just people getting on with life and doing the best they can. So if you're worried about somewhere, just, just go. It'll be fine. Trust me, I'm a journalist.
0: You know, it's funny because we always blame the journalists. We always blame the news agencies. But the fact of the matter is the reason they're producing that is because that's what people are attracted to. Now, whether you can, you know, you sell it like you're saying, well, it's kind of like waving candy to a kid, you know, it's irresistible for them, whatever the reason it's the consumer, that end consumer. I mean, you know, if you stop rubbernecking at accidents, the slowdowns, you know, that w- will will at least speed up a little bit. Uh, and maybe that's a bad example, but but you know what I'm trying to say.
1: I, I I absolutely do. You know, yeah, it's difficult to know whether, you know, to blame journalists or or to blame the consumer. Uh, and I mean, people, uh, including my wife, said to me, you know, why do journalists only you know write about about bad news, and I say, well, actually, that's a good thing because it means that the bad news is the exception. So it means that most things are good, um, mm. and I don't think journalists uh, deliberately seek out bad news. What they what they're seeking out is what's unusual, uh, and if if the unusual is bad news, then it means the usual is actually good. So it's 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 perversely, it's a good thing.
0: Mm, yeah, that's a, that's a good perspective, but but also. You know, you're talking about going through Columbia and, and nothing happened to you. And, and you said the the other story about the desert and nothing happened to you. I always like to point out at these times that, I mean, you can go through a minefield and not step on a landmine, but it doesn't mean it's safe.
1: Yeah, maybe maybe I've just been lucky, you know. But, uh, but having read, I mean, having read quite a few um, other bike adventure books, um, I think yeah, I, th- I think, yeah, I don't think I'm being naive. I think the same principle still follows through. I mean, time after time in books like that, um, like, you know, Jupiter's Travels, for example, um, uh, or, the, um, or really any bike adventure book, what you generally find is, is something else that I find, as well as my belief that people are essentially good everywhere and will help you, especially if you travel with a, a good attitude. The other really uh, important and useful and heartening thing is that um, uh, no matter how desperate the situation uh, feels, there is always a solution, Um, either in the planning. I mean, these things take a lot of organizing. I don't have a team to do it. It's just me, really. Uh, And I mean, it seemed like every, every single day, uh, at times and organizing the trips, particularly the Delhi to Belfast one, because it was the first one I'd done. Uh, there was just a completely insoluble problem and sometimes two or three a day. But you know what? There was always a solution or you worked around it or you found a solution. And the same happens when you're out on the road, you know, whether it's the accident in Colombia or being stuck at the, uh, the, uh, the border into Mexico, which happened on the trip as well. And thinking, I can't think of a, A way out of this, but, uh, one always appears and, and people will generally help you if they can. So, yeah, I think those are two really heartening lessons that, uh, that I've learned from these, from these adventures and other people have learned as well from the books I've read. A, that people are generally good and B, that there is always a solution.
0: How do you think um, travel has changed you both good
1: and bad? Ah, uh, good question jim you're you're full of them <laughs> um i think for the good it's made me realize that um uh particularly actually with the current um uh, dichotomy between the you know the western world and the uh the and the the Muslim world. Uh, I mean, some of the um, I mean, pa- pa- traveling through Pakistan, for example, you know, the some of the hospitality there was just astonishing. Um, you know, and, and hospitality to travelers or strangers is one of the central tenets of of the Muslim faith. And um, um, I think I think that the good the good thing it's taught me is that that, that pe- people all over the world have much more in common than anything that would separate them. Uh, uh, and the, the bad, yeah, it probably gives me a cheap feet, you know, like I did the, uh, I did the first one from, uh, India back to uh, the UK. And, uh, uh, I thought, yeah, you know what, that's a trip of a lifetime. Uh, I'll, I don't need to do any more now and before long, uh, I had a day of doing Route sixty six on a Harley, which was incredibly easy, obviously compared to um, the um, the other ones. And actually, if anybody's listening, that is a great road. Uh, Eighty five or ninety percent of it is still there. And whether you do it on a motorbike, on a one way rental or your own bike, or or even in a uh, um, a car, it, it's so emotive and evocative. Uh, just to get up in a nineteen fifties motel, put your stuff on a motorbike or in a car, and just Ride or drive down uh, Route sixty six, heading west for California. As so many, as so many did, um, and uh, so I did that, and mm. then yeah, of course that. that uh, uh, before long, I uh, I came up with the idea of Chile to Alaska, and then Australia, and then around the world. And uh, uh, Kate, my wife, uh, often jokes. Uh, that, uh, you know, I come home from an adventure and I say, okay, that's it. I'm not doing any more of those. It's far too much work and difficulty and blah, 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 blah. And she said, yeah, yeah, give it a, give it a couple of months and you'll come in and say, you know, I've had this idea and she's probably right. but
0: <laughs> <laughs> So the bad part is really good. I mean, the, the bad part, giving you itchy feet. I mean, what's wrong with that?
1: Yeah. What's wrong with that? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. What I mean, no, I'm so lucky to have, um, uh, had had uh, not just one trip of a lifetime, but several, you know. And uh, I, I'm very aware of that. And uh I, I know it's quite sad, but I was actually uh, the last last week. I I just sat down and read uh, uh, the Road to Gobbler's Knob again, just to remind myself that uh, that, uh, that doing amazing things wasn't just uh, in my imagination. it actually did. And uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm now I'm now reading Way to Go again. I know that's very sad, reading your own books, but who cares? <laughs> <laughs> that's with the the glass of scotch
0: lamenting yeah,
1: absolutely yeah <laughs>
0: yeah <laughs> uh jeff it's great to sit down and talk with you i'm going to put a bunch of uh links in here i'm going to put links to the to your book so that people can to, can see what you've got out there that way it'll uh, it'll make it easy for people to find it jeff th- thank you very much i really enjoy speaking with you
1: uh jim the pleasure is mine yeah and, uh, as i said uh, canada is a great country and great people i really loved the time i was there and uh you folks are, are a country to be proud of, and you should uh, you should remember that. But it's the pleasure it was absolutely mine, and uh, thank you, and thanks for asking some really good questions that uh, actually nobody had ever asked before.
0: I've been speaking with Jeff Hill from his home in Northern Ireland. Have a look at his books. The reviews online are terrific. We've got links for those in the show notes for this episode as well as some photos from Jeff on our website adventureriderradio.com. Up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, who's actually sitting right across from me. And of course, to you, the listener, thank you very much for being a part of this. Hey, if you're not doing it already, we need your support because this show is built on a model of advertising and listener support. And uh, we have a bunch of different ways you can do it. Anything $10 or more gets you a sticker sent at you. Anything $50 or more gets you a shout out on our Raw show. I'm going to tell you more about that in a second. But uh, we would love to get you on our patron team, which is something we can depend on each month so drop by our website AdventureRiderRadio.com, and click on support now um i was mentioning raw raw is another show that we do you need to subscribe separately to that it comes out once a month it's a uh, traveler round table that we do and it's very popular as well check that out anywhere you find podcasts my name is jim martin now if you can get out there if you can do it get out there and ride your bike and i will talk to you next week This is Travis. And Chantal Gill. And you're listening to Adventure Adventure Rider Radio. Radio.